It's the TEH Podcast, episode 192. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. I got to say, I, 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 I just, you know, get really excited, I guess, about enthusiastic would be the word about the number. The number keeps getting bigger. 192 yeah. episodes. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's good. I mean, it used to be that was like impressive, but podcasting so old now at this point <laughs> that there's know. some podcasters like episode 4622. Um, but yeah, you know, good for us for for sticking with it because that's what that's what podcasting's about. Sticking well, with that it. I mean, basically <laughs> just about anything. I mean, when you think about it, you know, you and I have been doing this long enough, be it newsletters or videos or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we both have bunch of, of, of content out there, a bunch of videos out there, a bunch of newsletters that have been published. You know, I'm like, what, 850 on my, my weekly newsletter. Mm -hmm. You're probably in similar sp uh, space. And really yeah. all it boils down to is, yep, do it every week. Just, just, keep just doing do it. it every week. Just keep doing mm -hmm. it. Um, and uh, as long as it stays fun and we can stay enthusiastic about it, that number will continue to increase. So, well, I'm always going to be enthusiastic about technology and yes. I can't see not wanting to talk about it. So you might as well just hit the record button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, all we're, that's all we're doing. That's all we're really doing. Exactly. Yeah. We're just recording a conversation once a week. So um, you were have a solution to a problem yeah. of some sort. Yeah. Okay. So uh, since I moved to my new home, uh, one of the things I did was I brought some old tech out. Uh, my my record player. I haven't had a record player hooked up for years and years and years. Uh, sold most of my record collection a long time ago, uh, but I still have some. My wife's got some, and we decided, hey, there's kind of a neat setup here for you know we could do a record player, and it's kind of a, a neat thing to have. So I hooked it up. And, and this is a new record player, one I never really hooked up before because I bought it because it's got a USB output. It's right. a really old record player, but that's how long that stuff's been around. And now I've got like a 15-year-old record player that actually has USB output. I never actually used this as like regular audio out. I had an, an old, an old, another turntable that I've gotten rid of. So I plugged it into the amplifier and, I, it, and it worked, of course, it worked. But I noticed that, you know, if I had it on background music level was fine. If I put it on foreground music level, like you really wanted to fill the room and listen to music, mm -hmm. in the silences, you could hear lots of interference, basically digital interference. Like it sounded mm -hmm. like you were logging onto AOL, you know? <laughs> and and I was like, ah, that's weird. Okay. So my first thought was that a grounding issue, right? Right. Yeah. Um, good, but, good thought. But I, nope, it's not a grounding issue. First of all, there was no ground on the on the record player. And I re, I found out later, I learned a little something that this record player, as opposed to an older traditional one, has a preamp in it. So no, okay. no grounding needed, right? But I tried anyway. <laughs> I tried. Sure. And to be, to be fair, grounding, it. grounding is usually the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the 60 hertz hum. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't that. It wasn't a right. hum. It was definitely interference. But I thought, let me go there first. And, and yeah, that wasn't working. I tried switching out the cables. I tried plugging it into the amplifier and different inputs. I tried grounding it to the amplifier, all sorts of things. I did, one of the things that kept me going back, back to grounding is I noticed if I grabbed the cable, the audio cable, which was like two RCA audio, you know, cables going mm -hmm. from the turntables to the amplifier. If I grabbed it with my hand, like wrapped it in my hand, mm -hmm. the noise went down. And I, you know, remember that, you know, of course, 
grounding isn't a, a, always a on or off type of thing. Sometimes, you know, you can ground something a little bit better if you provide a large object like your body, which is also, you know, feet on the floor kind of thing right. um, to it. And I kept thinking, boy, if I grab it with my hand, it, the, the noise goes down. I release my hand, it goes back up. But yeah, clearly it wasn't a grounding. I even tried shielding. I thought, well, you know what? This is digital interference. Let me shield it. I tried mm -hmm. wrapping some shielding around cable. Didn't seem to do anything. I even tried turning off everything except the record player and the uh, amplifier, which of course I need the amplifier. Right. <laughs> um, and I even separated the record player from the amplifier a little bit further. Could not get rid of the noise. So that was unfortunate. I couldn't figure out what to do. And I gave up. I've said, well, I don't really plan on listening to records. You know, when Apple Music is like, can be actually play through the same stereo speaker so easily, right. I don't need really to do it. But, you know, it's just, I'll have it hooked up. It'll be a neat thing. Um, and I didn't think much more about it. But then good old Amazon algorithms kicked in. And I was looking for something else on Amazon. Oh, I, I forgot to mention, I also tried buying uh, EFI uh, frequency um filtering power power strips okay okay yeah. so these are power strips that are supposed to filter out some of the noise that comes through an ac power line mm -hmm. um apparently used by musicians a lot of time on stage because they also in addition to that they also come extremely like heavy duty like metal cases and stuff for power strips so much heavier power strips and you know i gather for you know you toss them down on stage you're you know you're playing to live audience you want to have something really durable Right. Tried those. They didn't work. But Amazon's algorithm kicked in and suggested something out of the blue the next time I was searching for something to buy. It suggested something called ferrite beads. Now, ferrite beads sounds like the weirdest thing, but I guarantee you everybody listening has seen and probably has some of these. Yep. If you have a cable very typical on older cables, like USB cables from 10 or 15 years ago or mm -hmm. audio cables. And at the end, just before the connector, there's a little bit of wire. And then there's this black cylinder around the cable. Right. That apparently is a ferrite bead. It's a cylinder that contains a bit of ferrite in it, you know, metallic or carbon or whatever that is. Um, that just wraps around the cable. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't get any power. It doesn't create any power. It's just wrapping a portion of the cable in that. Mm -hmm. And what that supposedly does, according to the, you know, I looked up stuff, is that's supposed to cut down on radio interference with audio cables. Mm -hmm. Huh. Interesting. I always just assumed that those things did something. Like there was actually, you know, the, 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 the signal going through the cable went to that little cylinder. That little cylinder had a cup, uh, maybe a bit of electronics in it mm -hmm. that did something, but no, it doesn't do anything. The cable just passes through it and there's, it's surrounded by this element for a little bit. Well, it was $10 for 10. <laughs> and I thought, mm, why, why the heck not? Because it even, some of the information online even described exactly what I was talking about. And I thought there's no possible way this is going to work, but all right. $10, just put it in my next, my next Amazon prime day. I'll get some. So I got some and they came in little, now I'm like the ones you get on cables. They came in little cylinders that were, you can open them up and into halves and then you can yep. clip them around a cable. Yep. So I went over, turn on the record player. The key is don't play any record. Just have the record, you know, have it on silence oh, and right. turn the volume all the way up. And then you can hear the radio interference. Right. 
And I put one of these things around one end of the cable, the one near the record player, and sure enough, it cut the, the interference down by probably about half. I was like, oh. And then of course I'd already read enough to know that you should put them at either end. So mm -hmm. I put one at the other end and now it almost completely eliminated the interference. I have to now really crank it up to kind of, you know, head banging level <laughs> in order to actually hear the interference when there's silence. But for normal filling the room with music level, it's gone I, for $2 for two of these. Right. I was just blown away by now. And this isn't anything new because what I'm doing here is technology that I had, you know, you could have had in the sixties or seventies and yeah, solved yep. a problem that I really thought was a more of a modern day problem. And Where I've seen them uh, most commonly actually of all places is on uh, keyboard cables. Um, mm. And in fact, I've also seen them where um, there's this, you know, it's basically a tube that yeah. the cable runs through, but I've actually seen the cable looped through the tube twice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that too. If you've, so that actually, if you're, if you're still in an experimenting mood, mm -hmm. um, you might want to see if you can make that happen on one end or the other I, to get rid of the residual noise. I already plan on doing that because being these little audio cables, there's room. Right. They're, they're not as thick as some cables. Yep. Um, I'm actually staring at one right now because the headset I use to record this podcast, which is more than 15 years old, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really old, it's probably 20 years old, um, has one of these on the end. So I'm oh, looking uh -huh. at my Mac Studio computer and I have a USB adapter for USB-C and a regular USB. And then there's the ferrite uh, bead around right. it built into the cable from this 20 year old headset. It's so funny because the you answer reference... was staring me in the face the entire time. <laughs> you reference it as a ferrite bead. I've always heard it yeah. as a ferrite core. Um, yeah. But the bottom line is it's the same thing. Now, um, so the question, of course, that you were asking earlier is how does it work? Now, I have to admit it's very embarrassing yeah. because my, my degree is in electrical engineering mm -hmm. and um, I am a ham radio operator. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very sketchy on this. Um, and I'm sure that our listener will chime in with with details. It's magic, but, right? It's just and, magic. It is just magic, yes. Yeah, okay. Do I you remember so. back in when you were first learning about electricity, mm -hmm. you could take a wire and wrap it around a piece of metal enough mm -hmm. times and then run electricity through that wire and that would magnetize the metal. Yep. Basically, the definition of an electromagnet. Electromagnet, yeah. This is kind of the same thing in reverse, in that mm. the um, uh, the the electricity is running through that cable, and the high frequencies um, are essentially kind of, sort of creating a um, um, a magnetic field, but it's being absorbed or 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 counteracted, if you will, by the ferrite core, and since that is. You know, a, a magnetic kind of metal. In fact, I'll bet if you take a magnet, uh, you can pick up your mag you can pick up your ferrite cores. Ooh, uh, be because I tried that, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's basically acting as a damper for high frequency. Now, the interesting thing is that work great because it's high frequency that you're listening, but it's low frequency that you want to pass through. Um, and and yeah, so it's 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 cool stuff. It is. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm so embarrassingly weak on the um, on the theory behind it all, but it is absolutely something you frequently see on um, on ham radio antennas, especially the folks that are doing 
um, not the uh, the short distance um, VHF, UHF kind of radio stuff, but HF, the stuff that's actually talking around the world. Um, you'll see those those kinds of things employed on their uh, antenna leads. So yeah, that's that's very cool. The other thing I was wondering about before you got to the ferrite core, um, the the actual audio cables that connect between the um, the turntable and your receiver. Um, you had replaced those? So unfortunately, the cables that come out of the record player are wired in. I hate okay. that. I hate yep. that. But they're not very long. They're probably meant to be like if you sit the turntable on top of the amplifier. Sure. Um, so I had to extend those mm -hmm. with another set. And I did try multiple different sets. And I did, at one point during the experimentation, actually move things around so I could plug the uh, the record player directly in to the amplifier. So not, you know, eliminating any any possibility of it being any cable I was adding. I have another theory then. Yeah. Um, and that is that the cables coming off of this uh, turntable mm -hmm. are, to put it bluntly, cheap. Oh yeah, I'm um, sure they are. But but not but in a in a I don't know in an obscure way because what I'm just what I'm about to describe can also be cheap, but it could be more effective. So when you think about the the wires that are coming off there, you've got a left a channel and a right channel, and they're basically yeah. um, a neutral that appears in both of them, and then there's a a wire that contains the left signal and the right signal in the respective cables. There are two wires running next to each other. Mm -hmm. Another approach um, that I think is significantly more uh, resilient or um, better at rejecting outside interference is if those cables are designed to be coaxial. By that, I mean the neutral is actually kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, um, a sheet of aluminum or um, a mm. braid, and the uh, the signal wire actually travels through the middle of it. Yeah, uh, it's It's essentially what coaxial cables are. But sometimes you can use this coaxial kind of technology for the audio line, and it becomes much more resilient to that. It doesn't have to be expensive. That's why I say cheap is kind of a misnomer. But um, it is one of the one of the things that immediately came to mind because when you've got these two lines running in parallel without any shielding, really, uh, then you've got the possibility for outside interference. Yep. And, and another thing that I. I... Yeah, probably won't ever know, but I could if I wanted to open the thing up is mm -hmm. what is causing the radio interference? Because remember, I turned off everything and I still got it. It made no difference. Right. So it wasn't like it was like less because I had less things on. Like, because there's that I had right above it a TV, very digital, lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. I had an Apple TV. I, I talk about I unplugged all of these and it still had it. You unplugged them. I want to be I unplugged them. Yes. Okay. Now, here's the thing this, as I said before, has a USB out. It right. actually has an, a dig, an audio to digital converter inside of it, mm -hmm. and it's at, and it has no on and off switch. There is no switch to go to one to the other. Both are on at all times. Right. So I'm wondering if it's interfering with itself, if its own circuit in there to convert the audio to digital, to go out by USB, is that, actually what's creating the interference. Sure. That's for, a possibility. Yeah, it's a possibility, and I could open it up and disable that. You know, I, I would if I wanted to. I would. I, I'm not going to. <laughs> I, I I got my solution that works. So the other possibility is that um, I asked you if you unplugged because, for example, the uh, the TV that sits behind my desk here, um, even when it's plugged in, 
there's something mm-hmm. going on, right? There's, yeah. there's like oh, yeah, yeah. clicking and doing stuff. Oh no, I know um, that. I, I but, know better than to just turn them off and think that's going to solve it, but no. But you're in a fairly, I'll call it radio dense area, right? There's yeah, lots oh, of stuff going middle on in the your city. neighborhood. Oh, sure. And it could be as simple as your cell phone in the other room. It could be as simple as yeah. other signals from elsewhere in the building. Um, I don't even know where the nearest cell tower is for you, but it could be something like that. Like visible in multiple directions, but I, um, <laughs> 5g towers everywhere. Uh, but the thing is that of course, on the other side, it's like, I struggle to get a good Wi-Fi signal from room to room. So the idea of thinking that, oh, somebody in an, uh, like a whole other home is going to be interfering it's like, oh boy, well, if they are, I want to know what they're using because I can't, well, I sometimes can't get a decent signal. So there's a, there's a difference between a decent signal and a strong signal, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could be getting a very strong Wi-Fi signal from point A to point B in your home. It's just mm. that there's so much other interference that it can't be recognized by the receiver. Um, so strength and quality are two, are two yeah. different things. I've, I'm pretty sure it's strength based on lots of other stuff I won't sure. get into, but yeah, sure. it's, it's a strength issue. Um, but anyway, yeah. So yeah, it's just fascinating. It's just yep. like, and, and I really, all the solutions I had in my head and all the confidence I had in like, I could fix this. And the solution <laughs> was something I never really heard of before, even though it's right in front of me, even yep. at this moment, I'm staring at one. Interesting. Anyway. Fun times. Good yeah. Hey, so last week I was mm-hmm. talking about, uh, you know, my expansion of internet of things and how many um, different lights I've got now and fans and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's one, there's one kind of addendum to that story I wanted to bring up, which I thought was fascinating. Um, I was trying at one point to uh, turn, turn on some lights at a random time. And uh, I got an error saying that uh, the service, the genie service could not be reached. And I thought, oh, you know, it's sometimes I get that. Sometimes it says, it says, oh, can't be reached. And I just ask again and it immediately works. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? Okay. Um, but I, no matter what I did, it said couldn't be reached, couldn't be reached, couldn't be reached. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a problem. I've misconfigured something. And I went in and I started to look up online, like, okay, how do I troubleshoot this? I came across an interesting page that actually had somebody reporting the same message from two years ago. Right. <laughs> and I looked at it and and there the response was, oh, the service, the genie service is down right now. And I and immediately thought, okay, that was two years ago. So obviously it doesn't apply to me. Second of all, I don't think it should apply to me anyway, because I don't care if they're service somewhere else. This is just in my house. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked and there was a whole string of comments. And the string of comments was basically a it's down again you know, August, 2021, it's down again, December, 2021, it's down again, you know, February, 2022, you know, on and on and on into the final comment, which was that day and 15 minutes before saying it's down again. (laughs) So I was like, oh, well, this does apply to me. And first I thought, well, that's interesting that, okay, it's that, but also I thought, well, wait a minute, you're telling me my ability to turn on and off my lights relies on some server and some other part of the world being on yes wow (laughs) (laughs) i i just assumed for some reason that you know configuration sure registration sure maybe even you know setting things up to work through google home sure 
But to simply turn it on or off, I thought at some point it's bypassed and it's like, no, you know, the my Google Nest and Google Assistant would know what to do to send a signal to this device, turn it off. And I, yeah, because if I had like, a, say, a home, an Apple HomeKit device, I'm certain that it doesn't rely on anything. Like if I configure it, to, matter of fact, I know that it, it, it will rely on something in my house because there are certain devices, like it used to be you needed a, um, an Apple TV or a HomePod um, to be your, your kind of base for your mm -hmm. devices. And then Apple basically extended that to almost everything. So it doesn't, you know, you don't need any particular device. You can use an iPad, for instance, is, is the device that actually does the talking. But it, I'm fairly certain that Apple HomeKit doesn't rely on any Apple server. So it's on. easy enough to test, of course, right? Disconnect your just, internet just, and yes, see if you can turn on the lights. Yeah, but so oh, that's that's another thing. So you're telling, so this was because the Genie service was down. Right. I Yeah, I need to, I do need to test, like, uh, yeah, if I just disconnected the internet service, I assume based on this that no, I would not be able to turn off the lights. I know that here at home, uh, because I use the Amazon Echo, yeah. um, all of its uh, of its voice recognition is done remotely. So if I don't yeah. have an internet connection, I cannot talk to my Echo. Oh, so that's um, there's another boundary. So the thing I need to test, and I think this is the case. I think if I remember correctly, I actually went into the app and was able to turn the lights off. So I don't think, I don't, okay. I think it's not that that's, I, I, I think I can turn the light on and off directly in the home. Mm -hmm. But when I ask Google okay. to do it, yep. then Google set, Google goes to a, another server, the Genie server right. in this case for these particular items, and then talks to the Genie server. So both Google needs to be up and accepting input right and the genie server that talks to google needs to be up and it makes a round trip from my voice to the device you know like say a, a nest and then mm -hmm. to google server and then google server to genie and then genie back to my home right where it turns off the light right so two points of failure google and genie but if i just do it on the app it doesn't seem to need that Interesting. Yeah, I should try. I've I've certainly run into that situation where um, you know um, the echoes aren't working for one reason or another, um, yeah. and yes, firing up the associated app. Sometimes, what's interesting is that the um, the um, the app, the Amazon app, mm. on my phone, also allows me just a regular interface for turning lights on and off. Yeah. I don't have to talk to it. I can just push buttons and, you know, to see the device. Sometimes that'll work where voice recognition doesn't. And then I've also got the third party app sitting on my phone as well. That will yeah. sometimes work. Um, but I'll have to try that next time too. Yeah. Um, so I, I yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I did in along those lines. I did this week um, and I, I did a video uh, on this uh, for my patrons. I, I was able to get Siri to turn off on on and actually do anything any of the stuff i talked about you know i get siri to do it now cool i i, I don't think i mentioned that last week did i no, or, no 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 okay but it relies on a device so in this case my iphone so i have a shortcut set up on my iphone and the shortcut actually uh i can use siri and trigger a shortcut and then siri will ask me what i want to ask google and then i could give <laughs> google any command 
So I could, I could, you're supposed, the idea is it's built through the Google Assistant app. And the right. idea is I'm supposed to then ask the Google Assistant a question, something only Google Assistant would know. But it doesn't right. have to be a question. It could actually be a command because it right. doesn't matter. It just goes into Google as input. So I can use this Siri uh, shortcut on my iPhone and then it will actually, uh, I could tell it to turn a fan on or off or a light or any anything I can normally do through like a Nest or my you know, other Google voice input devices. The iPhone runs it though. So if I ask it and say, I'm doing it and using my HomePod, okay, it works. It's just my iPhone needs to be unlocked because what will <laughs> happen is the HomePod will say, oh, I've got a thing for this. The uh, Your iPhone's got it. And it actually then runs the Google Assistant because the Google Assistant app is on the iPhone. It's not on the HomePod. Right, and the same thing in Apple with an Apple TV. The Google Assistant app isn't on the Apple TV, so it's my iPhone that's got to be like, "Oh, I can do it! I can do it!" And the iPhone does it. So as long as the iPhone's unlocked, I can actually ask Siri anywhere to do it, and then it will work. It's not a great solution, no, nope. but it does. <laughs> and it's weird because it's like if I so I could say, "Oh, I could take out my iPhone." And I could use my iPhone to control everything, but I could already do that by just going to the Google Assistant app on my iPhone. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, but this, uh, if I didn't have a Google Nest in my office, I could use my HomePod. And that's one place where it would be kind of useful. But then again, I could also then just use Google Assistant app on my iPhone. I, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> it's just you, you did it I, not because it's a good solution, but yeah. just to prove it could be done. Prove it, prove it could be done. Yeah. So anyway. So is, can can Siri be um, instructed to control um, Alexa? Yes, I think it. Uh, it's a good question. I have to look. So the the key is that the Google Assistant app from Google has a hook into shortcuts. Right. Shortcuts is the is the thing. It's on the iPhone, the iPad, and the Mac, and you could use it to automate your Mac. And when you install an app, the app goes and basically makes certain things available. It says, hey, as an app, the short shortcuts can ask me to do these things, right? So various apps, may, like a music playing app may say, hey, you can ask me to change the volume. You can ask me to play a song. You can ask me to do this, you know? And these are the things that it makes available to shortcuts. The Google Assistant app just does one. It goes and it says, you can provide me with input, you know? Uh, and so if you have the Google Assistant app installed, then you can, you know, uh, do that. Now, the question is, does the Alexa app or any of the Google apps allow you to do that? And I could test that out really easily by just creating a new shortcut and then adding an action and then say for the action, search for, I'll try Alexa, but probably Amazon. Nope, I don't see it. Interesting. Now there may be some Alexa app I'm not using. There, there is. Oh, a, I, I do have an Amazon. I do have the Amazon Alexa app. So okay. that's. So a, you should. Yeah, you should yeah. have access to it if it's going to be there. Um, yeah. yeah, there is definitely a separate app for that. Um, interesting. Yeah, um, okay. So I wanted to. What you reminded me of is I had this week a an extremely similar scenario. Um, so I've, I think I mentioned last week that I have a number of lights in the house mm -hmm. that are controlled by an Amazon Echo uh, routine. Right. Routines are basically their, their equivalent of, you know, 
programming without codeless programming, I guess you'd call it. You just sort of set up some conditions and tell it what to do. And one of them is to turn on, uh, it's my front door lights and driveway lights at sunset. Mm. Um, and I think actually I have to turn on the office light at sunset as well. Anyway, bottom line is sunset lights come on. And it's kind of cool because, of course, sunset changes throughout the year. So rather than right. having to specify a specific time, um, you just let you know Amazon kind of figure that out. Except I noticed, I don't know, a few days ago that the lights weren't on. We took the dogs out at night, um, you know, around 10 o'clock, and some lights that are normally on because of this routine weren't on. So, you know, man, yeah, okay, fine. It, you know, it happens. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the lights don't get the message. <laughs> it's the way I, the way I think of it, the way I describe mm -hmm. it. Um, and then the next night, same thing. And then mm -hmm. the next night, the same thing. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe sunset's not working. And I did exactly what you did. I went and searched. I found the Amazon uh, support forums for this. And I found reports from, wait for it, two years ago that said, hey, sunset's not working. Ah. And then a year ago, sunset's not working. And then a couple of days ago, sunset's not working. Uh, apparently, however they do sunset um, is broken. Mm. Uh, and uh, I don't know if it's like a third party provider. I would hope not. That seems like something that would be really simple to just, you know, um, Amazon yeah. would would have a uh, an AWS instance sitting in a corner whose job it is to figure out when sunset is around the world. Um, but it just, it, it just same thing. And for the time being, uh, I just changed the routine to use a hard coded time. Um, and, you know, in a few days, I'll turn it back to sunset and see if it works, but mm. it just cracks me up. There are all the, there are all these bizarre interdependencies that you just never think of, especially when things are just working. Right. Right. Um, Cause I've been, I've, I mean, I've had this set up for well over a year uh, and it's actually very, very cool to be able to just sort of have that stuff happen automatically. But um, when it breaks, it's kind of interesting to, uh, to understand all the interdependencies that there happen to be. Now, something else you were mentioning, um, and I don't have links to this, but I did run across several months ago, some open source, I guess I'd call them alternatives for IoT management. Mm. Uh, so these are the things that I think would replace um, the third-party software, um, the Amazon or the Google software, uh, something that you could run on a machine in your own home that would control the devices in your home directly. And of course, there's a long list of things that it's compatible with and not compatible with and so forth. Mm. I, don't, I don't think it does voice recognition, but um, it does potentially remove the dependence on a number of these uh, outside services that apparently will occasionally break. So yeah. it's mm. something that someday when I'm really bored, I might investigate. Or uh, the other thing that came up uh, several months ago is that, you know, Amazon is apparently uh, losing money on Echo. You know, it's yeah. not, it, it hasn't taken off in the, mm. as a, as a revenue source for them in the way that they were hoping it would. And the concern is that uh, someday they might pull the rug out from under us. Um, that, yeah, that would be painful for any number of different reasons. But, um, but you know, 
I mean, we've seen that kind of stuff happen from these large companies before. Well, they just say, you know what? Um, what was it? D DP Digital Photo Review, DP Review. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, that website that was like decades old, had tons and tons of content. Amazon just sort of said, meh, nope. Um, and it's gone now. So the concern is that something like that would someday happen to Echo. And that's, that's when uh, a lot of us, I suspect, will start looking at these third-party solutions or these open source solutions, to be honest, um, to see if maybe they might be the thing to uh, uh, to solve the problem, to to backfill the the missing functionality. Yeah. And strangely, you know, it's the, uh, the software or firmware or whatever inside these devices, hmm. uh, a lot of times is not the best. Right. You know, it, but that actually then becomes an advantage, right? Because if it was really well built, they right. probably put all sorts of security things in there. It would probably be like, you know, a solid thing and you just could not, it wouldn't be flexible at all. Um, but the fact that sometimes these aren't built well, that's the exact, you know, the, the holes in it yeah. that allows us later <laughs> on to go and say, hey, now we figured out a way to control these lights using a Raspberry Pi in your home or whatever. Um, yeah. That reminds so, me of the know. old the old router scenario where you've got this this family of routers um, mm. where uh, you know you don't like the software in them, replace yeah. it. You know there's yeah. there's open source router software you can install in these standard routers. Uh, I've never used it, but it's the same kind of idea. If you don't like the software, replace it. And what's interesting about the IoT devices is that not only is the software often bad, it's often the same software across all of these devices. Um, they often get, or at least start with, the same basic quote-unquote operating system uh, that they then tweak. And it's the operating system, of course, that carries the uh, um, the lack of quality forward. Right. I want to, it, you, what you were saying before about, you know, things uh, breaking mm -hmm. um, but, and, you know, you don't even know, you don't even know about the whole sunset, sunrise thing. You know, you don't think about it until it breaks right. is Arthur C. Clarke has a famous quote. Uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yes. And I can amend that and say any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic until it breaks. <laughs> All of a sudden it's not magic anymore. You realize it's some some poorly written server somewhere that now is not working. So, There's this yeah. great meme that's been floating around the past couple of weeks. It's it's drawn in the style of XKCD and it may very well be an XKCD cartoon. I'm not sure. Um, but it shows this this massive pile of blocks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it says, you know, the, the world's infrastructure. But then there's this one little block down at the bottom that the entire thing leans on. Mm -hmm. And it's obvious that if that block were to be removed, the whole thing would come cascading down. And the 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 description of that one little block is something like, you know, and this one critical service that's being maintained by some random person in his basement in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if something ever is, happens I, to I that, believe it is an SK, an XKCD. I think that is an actual one. We'll have to see if yep. we can find it. Yep. It, it's yeah. Some, some like small little graphic, like, you know, library or something like that. Yes, yes. That's that little piece at the bottom. That's Yeah. But nobody it's, realizes everything depends on until everything depends on it. And the thing, the, the thing that makes it one of the funniest XKCDs of all time is the whole funny because it's true thing. Yes, because boy, <laughs> oh, it yeah. really is true. Anybody that has written any amount of serious software understands that there's always, always that one key component that doesn't really get the love that it needs in comparison to its importance. <laughs> so. 
Exactly. Anyway, yeah. so one of the things that came up this week, um, and it'll actually be my self-promotion article later, is this concept of um, AI, because obviously we haven't talked about AI enough, um, being applied to password cracking, which I thought was kind of interesting and I think has people a little bit, I want to say concerned, out of proportion, right? The, the headlines kind of make it make it seem like, um, you know, AI is the end of passwords. Uh, and it's not, right? There, it's, it's not that AI is able to uh, crack any random password. But I thought what was interesting about it is actually how AI is being applied to password cracking by hackers uh, that makes what they do more, I don't know, efficient, more effective, but again, not 100%. If you've been doing passwords right, uh, which by definition means you know long and random, um, then you have nothing to worry about uh, because it's the randomness that AI can't really approach. But it's the lack of randomness that makes passwords easy for people to remember. And that's what they rely on so frequently. Mm -hmm. um, what happens is passwords end up getting cracked usually from a stolen database. So uh -huh. if somebody has a breach, um, then the hackers have this nice big database of usernames and encrypted passwords. And since they have the database, they have all the time in the world to basically apply whatever software they want to to that database to try and crack the encryption that was used for those passwords. What they will often do is start with a list of uh, weak passwords or known bad passwords or known popular passwords, because that will get them the low-hanging fruit. It's amazing the number of people that continue to use um, the really weak passwords, those those lists that come out every year of um, you know the worst passwords ever. And they're the worst, not because they're really bad passwords, although they are, but mm -hmm. because of how many people are still using them, how often they show up in various breaches. So that's where hackers often start. Um, they theoretically, we, we keep talking about how long would it take to crack a password by brute force. I don't know that hackers are necessarily doing that anymore um, because ultimately uh, you know, any sufficiently long password is going to not be crackable using that technique. And given that they've got so much low hanging fruit in the form of reused passwords, that is just easy. That's the other thing is that once a password has been discovered, no matter how strong a password is, it's been discovered. And that means that it basically joins the list of passwords that have been seen in the past and therefore passwords that will get tried again on the next breach or on every subsequent breach to see if that password happened to be, um, you know, if the person happened to reuse that password in more than one place. So obviously lesson number one is don't reuse passwords. But the AI aspect of this was interesting. What they did, is they took some corpus of passwords um, mm -hmm. that people had generated over time. And this included, uh, you know, obviously bad passwords, passphrases, and especially those passwords where people, they don't use a random password generator, but they do do something to generate a password. People aren't random. As much as we might think we mm -hmm. are, we are not. Even subconsciously, we're not necessarily random. So that means that when we generate a password, 
there's probably kind of sort of an algorithm behind the scenes. Not something that a person would detect, not something that software would necessarily detect, but it's a pattern and AI is wonderful at recognizing patterns. Ultimately, that's what AI in a lot of ways or machine learning really is all about. It's about understanding patterns. Uh -huh. So as it analyzes this database of um, you know, all sorts of different patterns, all sorts of different passwords, it can then say, okay, let's start generating passwords like those passwords. And that then can increase the effectiveness of the passwords that are being used to try and crack databases. Uh, I just find that absolutely fascinating. And like I said, the, um, the solution from the end user's point of view, from your point of view and my point of view, is to make your passwords long. And we're now saying 16 characters is what it takes. And random. And by that, I mean truly random. Not random off the top of your head. No, use the password generator in your password vault or use one of the password generators you can find online. Use something that actually generates a truly random collection of characters because that is not something that AI is going to break. It's when you actually try and, and um, uh, think you're outsmarting the algorithm by having your own silly little algorithm. That's the kind of stuff that's now easily up for grabs. Um, anyway, I just thought this was was super, super fascinating um, and the kind of a thing that while it could generate a lot of um, concern, uh, like I said at the beginning, if you're doing passwords right to begin with, you don't have anything to worry about. Exactly. Yeah. I, I keep uh, telling people that, I mean, you know, no matter how clever you are, putting, you think, oh, I put a date in there, but I used you know, dashes instead of whatever. I mean, right, right. there's, there is no, there's, there's no way to hide that. Just don't use a date. Don't use a name. Right. And, and I think I, I know this isn't quite what you meant, but like, I think they still try to use a uh, lists of passwords, but only when they're doing a certain thing, like, okay, you're, you want to break into Facebook. Um, so, you know, you want to get some accounts, mm -hmm. you take a bunch of email addresses mm -hmm. and then you take, you know, a list of a thousand names as passwords mm -hmm. and you set bots out and mm -hmm. you just, and you, you wake up in the morning and it says 387 accounts verify, you know, that you've right, broken into, right. you know? So it's like, okay, uh, you know, if you just want to get X number of broken Facebook accounts so you could put ads on them or something, um, you still use those lists. <clears throat> but I think, yeah, the more sophisticated attacks, you know, when you want to get, more accounts broken into, or maybe accounts that have valuable information in them, like bank accounts or Amazon accounts or eBay accounts or whatever, then yeah, these AI techniques, um, yeah, the only way to protect yourself is if it wasn't you that thought up the password in the first place, it was just a random right. code. I even used, I, I'm, I'm to the point now where I even uh, uh, made my wife mad because we have a combination, a, a lock on the door, the front door to our home mm -hmm. that is, you know, numbers. And I had that randomly generated. So she's like, what does this number even mean? How am I supposed to remember it? I'm like, it's random. I'm sorry. It's like, can't we have it be something? And I'm like, nope, nope. I want it to be <laughs> random. I, yeah, yeah, I, so, understand, yeah. I understand that one. Um, what I find, so, the, the, but the the list that they're working from, if they do, for example, one of these slow, call it an overnight attack on Facebook, 
Um, I suspect that they're using lists, but they're using lists, not necessarily of just names or whatever, but these, these lists of popular passwords, because mm -hmm. enough people continue to use them that, yeah, you try long enough, one of them's going to work on a Facebook account. Um, sure. Yep. What I remember from years ago, um, I've taken steps to no longer make this an issue, but um, I would sometimes monitor my server mm -hmm. and just the server logs. And I would see this constant stream, very slow, like, you know, every couple of seconds of failed login attempts. And mm -hmm. all that was, was a very slow, extremely persistent brute force attack where they yep. were trying different usernames, different passwords in the hope that one of them would potentially work at some point. Mm. Um, and I suspect that, you know, security is lax enough on some servers, passwords are bad enough in some accounts that yeah, they get hits. Um, they, they do are able to get into um, accounts that uh, like I call them low hanging fruit. Um, if your security is lax, you are low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, um, you know, I can't talk about passwords without talking about two-factor authentication, because that way, at least, even if your password gets discovered somehow, no matter how strong it is, because remember, there's lots of ways to discover passwords. <laughs> if you've got malware on your machine, you've mm -hmm. got a keylogger on your machine, it doesn't matter how strong your password is. Yeah, um, or just or just uh, social engineering. That's yep. the easiest way to, uh, yeah. If you want to, if to you want kind of stuff. to target a specific person, especially, mm -hmm. um, or you just want to get a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of you know, passwords. A lot of times, these social engineering things, people mistake the, the idea that oh, there's you know, they say a hacker tried to. No, a, a hacker's bot try to, yes. <laughs> you know, don't, don't think that, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, it, this is an unlikely way, you know, this tech support person calling me from Microsoft or whatever, it, that's unlikely um, uh, as a way to get, uh, to get my password. Well, the thing is, it's not just you. <laughs> They're going after people in mass, right? right? You know, sending you if you get a text message saying to log into your bank because of something, um, you, it's just not. They probably send it to like half a million people, yep. And they're just hoping to get if you know twelve of them to say. All they need is oh, a few. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, yep. Anyway, two-factor authentication means, of course, that they still can't get in even if they've got your password. It makes um, an additional level of social engineering to actually bypass two-factor authentication. Not that it isn't possible. Um, yeah. Like I said, it is. It is absolutely a level of um, uh, of uh, social engineering that often. Um, you know, we have heard stories of, but nonetheless, it's an additional layer of protection as well. It makes the whole concept of needing your password um, pretty much, you know, irrelevant. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Just, just do the right thing and get those random passwords, password managers and this stuff that you and I are always talking about. Yep. And, you know, I, sleep, e <laughs> I sleep easy at night. I do. I'm not worried. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, me, yeah. No, that that is true. That's that's another measure of something. If you're worried, if you're worried about passwords being broken into, either you're using weak passwords, mm -hmm. right, or you're not understanding, uh, you know, using random passwords, using two factor, how how much more secure you are than you know. Yep. the people that are actually going to get their accounts broken yep. into. If there were one thing I'd say people should stop doing, it's reusing passwords, using oh, the yeah, same password in more one. than one place. So. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. All righty. 
Uh, let's yeah. see. So what's cool this week? So yeah. um, we, uh, a number of the shows that we watch normally or, or regularly have come to their season end here, the uh, the end of April, beginning of May. Mm -hmm. So we picked up uh, Sweet Tooth season two on Netflix. Yep. Um, it's, I forget, have you seen season one? Yes, and I'm, I've started season two as well. Excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, for for our listener, it is a post-apocalyptic uh, scenario where they're basically hybrid children and Sweet Tooth has antlers because he's apparently part deer. Uh, but there's a number of other um, uh, scenarios, another of uh, other children of different styles of hybrids. And of course there's oppression and, and you know, there's the, the evil, you know, elements of society uh, out to get them. Apparently they're alluding to the fact that the cure for the disease that has wiped out 98% of humanity is somehow associated with these hybrid critters. Um, anyway, it's, it's fun. It's good to see them. Um, we're having fun or watching that one. Yep. And yeah, me too. Um, here's one that you probably never heard of <laughs> and uh, it's called escape to the chateau. So this is a British TV series, a reality TV series that actually just ended. It's it, it was seven seasons and we didn't discover it till just now. So we have plenty of seasons. Uh, uh, we're in the middle of binging. So it is about a British couple that leaves Britain, leaves their home there and takes their life savings and buys a chateau in France. Of course, it's a rundown, you know, almost looks like it should be just bulldozed and mm -hmm. they build condos there or something. Uh, but they buy it with the idea that they're going to fix it up. I mean, it had almost no electricity, no plumbing, no heat, nothing. I mean, the walls were falling apart, everything at the be you know, beginning of season one. And they spent every penny buying the thing. He is a former engineer, an engineer, and he knows how to fix things. He knows how to build things. Uh, she's a designer. She knows how things should look. She knows how to make things look really good. Um, and they've got two little kids. They've got extended family that comes to help and friends that come to help. And they start rehabilitating the chateau and the grounds around it uh, through the seasons. And they not only live there, but they're, they turned it into a wedding venue. So the idea is that you can go mm -hmm. here, whether you're French or British, you can go there and have a wedding weekend there. And it's a beautiful spot to be married and have your, your party with all your friends and all that. And it's great because uh, first I love it because it's just an antidote to all the negativity today. Because right. this show, it's a reality show. There's no conflicts. I mean, every once in a while they try, you know, the, the narrator will say, oh, the plumbing is all shabby here, you know, but then, you know, then within five minutes, that, that they're going to be like, oh, here's the solution for it. Mm -hmm. um, they, the couple and the kids and the family, they all get along so well and they're all so, uh, you know, game for anything. And there's a lot of love. There's a lot of uh, just positive things going on. Um, and and it just, it's just nice to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, there's also some tech because, of course, you're seeing how things are fixed. You're, a lot of times you're shown like, well, this is why in the 19th century it was built like this because this mm -hmm. is how the system worked. And uh, it, he'll explain like, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to build – they build a, a, a water heating system with a tank in the attic and a, but a, and a heater below and then it heats the home and provides – uh, hot water. They build an elevator into one of the towers that's a pneumatic elevator because mm -hmm. it's a, a cylindrical tower. So they 
have a pneumatic elevator that actually doesn't have cables, but the air is sucked out of the top and it lifts the elevator up. Sucked out of the top. Yeah, wow. it's a pneumatic <laughs> elevator and it was so cool. I thought they were going to be pushing the air thing. in at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. You even find out about, I mean, they're just, you know, how they rebuild this things about how the moat is built and how uh, different systems that keep a house running or, you know, big chateau like this, uh, how, how they're, they're done. So you do learn a little bit of tech uh, while watching it. Uh, but it's just a, it's just a great show enjoying it, uh, so much and recommending it to, to everybody. Cool. Um, yeah. Did you say, is it a real, technically a reality show? It's technically, is... yeah, because it's, it's the, you know, stars oh, this is like, really happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's really happening. So it started with this couple that, you know, I guess they were smart enough to, you know, one of them was involved a little bit with TV and stuff. So they're smart enough to say, Hey, we're, we're buying the Chateau in France let's get a camera crew to follow us around <laughs> and it, and it worked out. And now it's, you know, the seasons actually get longer as you get through as the, as the, as it gets yeah. more popular. Cool. Um, and it's just really cool to see. Uh, just wanted to make sure do. it was a reality show and not a drama no, or no, not a not, reality show no. in the sense that the office was a reality show. No real people, <laughs> real, real people coming to get married and cool. you see their weddings getting put together nice. and yeah, all this cool stuff happening and it's just you know whatever whatever happened even the good and the bad if something breaks you know if something goes wrong during a repair you see that too uh as i mentioned earlier my self-promotion this week is my yeah. article will ai crack your passwords it's askleo.com slash 155884 i basically go into what i was talking about earlier in a little bit more detail and probably with a little bit more clarity and structure yep cool uh, I'll point to one that was popular for me this last week. Um, I point out some Easter eggs that are in Mac OS. There are actually not very many because Steve Jobs actually hated them. Yeah, I've um, heard that. I was surprised and, there are any. Yeah, so a few have crept back and mostly cosmetic ways. Things hidden in Apple designs of emojis, things kind of like you might not notice that are in certain parts of Mac OS that actually have a history to them. Mm -hmm. So I, I point out a bunch of them and, and people that really seem to like it. I'm known for my videos being useful and there, this is not useful at all, <laughs> but people, people liked it anyway. So cool. I was just, that makes me wonder. So, um, you know, my name is in a couple of Easter eggs, uh, that are windows related. I'm just not Ooh. sure that they're actually in windows anymore. Mm. Um, they predate find out. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure they're not, but it just, it's kind of interesting there. There are lots of um, Easter eggs in various Windows programs and Windows itself and mm -hmm. so forth. But they've gone through that same history of um, everybody, let's do an Easter egg. Uh, nobody should do Easter eggs. You get in trouble if you do Easter eggs, but you don't get in trouble if the Easter eggs actually sh I mean, it's just crazy. Right. Um, I personally find them fascinating and I find them a wonderful way to um, actually give the folks who did the work um, some some recognition. Because that's a lot of what the yeah. Easter eggs are is, is lists of names and that kind of stuff, which is kind yeah, of yeah, and and it's also a good way just to to humanize the 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 software to, to yes. remind people when you see it that hey, you know what there was a real person designed this graphic, a real person programmed this app, yep, um, because they did this little thing in here that's kind of a neat little thing. Uh, one, of course, you mentioned Windows. One of the Easter eggs I talk about is if you connect a device to your Mac. Uh, you see, and you know, when you look at it, if it's an iPad, it looks like an iPad. If it's a, you know, a, a MacBook, it looks like a MacBook. If you happen to connect a PC over the network, mm -hmm. a Windows PC, 
there's a little icon. If you don't look at it closely, it just looks like a little, you know, PC screen and that's mm -hmm. it. But if you actually enlarge it, it's actually a CRT monitor with the blue screen of death. I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. I can, and I, I yeah, I get it. <laughs> cool. On that note, I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Uh, mm -hmm. The show notes for this week are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh192. If you've got a comment or a question, leave the comment or question there. We absolutely read them. We've gotten a few. Thanks as always for listening, and we will see you here again real soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.